verse 10. We're going to go on through verse 6 of chapter 3. And would you stand as we read God's word, recognizing that this is his inspired word, not the word of man. Hebrews 2 verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. Let's pray. Father, as we have read this passage, I pray that we wouldn't get lost in the words, that we wouldn't feel detached from what is said here, because what is said is so powerful and important. And I pray that you would use me, uh, let me be out of the way, let your word come forth and and accomplish its purpose this morning. Help us all to learn and and be ready to, to be changed by what you have here, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, throughout the first two chapters of Hebrews, we've seen this overarching theme of the superiority, the supremacy of Christ. He is superior to the prophets because their message came in small portions over many centuries, but his is the final message and the perfect representation of God as the incarnate Son. He is superior to the angels, we learned. Because he's not only the one that made the angels, but the angels serve him. And then in chapter 3, we learn that he is superior to Moses because the son is master over his own house, whereas Moses is a servant in that house. And so you might expect, I think, that the conclusion would be that because of this superiority, the supremacy of Christ, you would, you would hear this exhortation, so therefore, worship Christ, right? That would be the thing, the exalted king of kings. But that's not actually what we read. It's not that that's not true. But far less obvious, and what we actually hear in these first three chapters is about his service to us. Look at verse 10. It starts with, it, is, it was fitting. 
And that's an interesting word, fitting. Every Bible version that I checked used the same word as if every translation committee agreed that that was the best word. And it's the translation of the Greek word aprepin, which comes from the verb to be proper or appropriate. And so our question is, what, what was appropriate? What, what was proper about what was done? Well, if we follow the verse all the way through to the end, what we learn is that it was fitting for him, the father, to make the pioneer or captain of our salvation, which would be the son, Jesus Christ, perfect through sufferings. And before we ask how that could be the appropriate thing, we need to understand what is meant by perfect through suffering. You see, Christ already was perfect with regard to his character in life. He was without sin. Hebrews 5.8 helps us because it says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And as I thought about that, probably as you wrestle with that, the question is, when is the hardest time to keep being faithful? Isn't it when you're suffering? When is it the most difficult time to trust the Lord? It's when you're going through those trials. And when is the most difficult time to be joyful and have a good attitude towards others when you're suffering? When is it most tempting to grow bitter and angry and despondent and vindictive? It's when you're suffering. And Jesus was always perfectly obedient. But he learned, the scripture says, perfect obedience by going through the toughest trials. This is what is meant by being perfected or made perfect through suffering. He not only learned perfect obedience, but he was also able to have a perfect sympathy and empathy with us who also suffer and face temptation. So the author says it was fitting for the father to perfect his son through suffering. And this is because, as the next verse brings out, that suffering and obedience produced salvation. But how can we say that such a thing is appropriate or proper of God? It's because bringing many sons to glory, this idea really of a great family procession moving ever higher from glory to glory, all led by Jesus, reflects the perfect character, the mercy, and the grace of God. It was appropriate because that is who God is. He is love. He is mercy. He's grace. And not only is that the kind of God we serve, but look at what else it says. It says that Christ, the supreme Son of God, is not ashamed to call us, the sinners who are being sanctified, call us brethren. And that is such an amazing thing, that the one who deserves all honor and worship spends so much effort and focus on caring for us to the point that in verse 14 it says he has partaken of flesh and blood that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death over us so i want you to keep all of that in mind as we look through these next two verses verses 12 and 13 because they have three quotes from the old testament that sometimes we roll past we don't, But if we look carefully, we might ask, why are these quotes here? 
Some of them are actually just a sentence pulled out of a, of a paragraph that brings a greater context. Why these? And so the first one is found in verse 12, and it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. That's from Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is probably the clearest messianic psalm in the entire Psalter. It's, it's the one, for example, in which we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the one where we find descriptions of the crucifixion, such as they pierced my feet and my hands, and they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So we have you know, these such clear, uh, fa- even factual descriptions of what was going to take place. And the first 21 verses of Psalm 22 are a depiction of God's Son, forsaken by the Father, crying out to Him for strength. And verse 21 ends the first half of Psalm 22 with a simple four-word comment. You have answered me. You have answered me. And so here we have the Son. He calls out to the Father. He says, I'm abandoned. Where are you? He asks for response, and then it says, you have answered me, and as a result of saying you have answered me, that's where our quote comes from. It's the very next verse in which the Son now resurrected. That's the answer of the Father, the approval, the acceptance of the Son to raise him from the dead, where the Son says back to the Father, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. So here is the resurrected, triumphant Christ in Psalm 22, verse 22, whose first statement is, I will declare your name to my brethren. If you digest it for a moment, the first action of the triumphant Lord is not to immediately turn and blast everyone who just put him on the cross. The first action is not to sit down upon the throne and begin to rule. The first action is to declare the Father's name to his brothers. We just read he is not ashamed to call us brothers, sinners who are being sanctified, but then it says that the first action after the Father is answered is that he turns back and says, I will declare your name amongst my brothers. Not only that, but it says, and... I will, in the midst of the assembly, which is really in the midst of the church, which he has built, I will, what? Sing praise to the Father. And I like what John Calvin once wrote. He says, this teaching is the very strongest encouragement to us to bring yet more fervent zeal into the praise of God when we hear that Christ leads our praise and is the conductor of our hymns. You thought Dave Langley was conducting our liturgy this morning? No. Christ is singing praise in the midst of the assembly to the Father. And therefore, we need as his brothers and sisters to be joining our voices with passionate zeal in the worship of God. The next quote also found in verse 12 is, I will put my trust in him. And that's a quote from Isaiah 8. 17. 
In Isaiah 8, Isaiah is told to bind up the prophecy until the time of Emmanuel. And in the meantime, Isaiah says, I will wait on the Lord and I will hope in him. And he spoke those words in the midst of difficulty and persecution. And they become the words of Christ. Almost like a prophetic echo of what is to become the words of Christ as he undergoes persecution. And the final quote from verse 13 is also from Isaiah 8. This one is in verse 18. So it's just a few verses later. And it says, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, you need the context of that one. In that one, Isaiah had been told to name his two sons symbolic names. The first name. Now, imagine God telling you the name of your next child. Okay, so maybe Kelsey has twin boys that are on their way. So, Kelsey, Marshallel Hashbaz is what you're going to name the first one. And that is the spoil speeds. The prey hastens. It was meant to symbolize the fact that the two oppressors of Judah, which were the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria, would be quickly removed. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens away. and you know, Not escape, but being removed out of the way. Um, and the next son would be Shir Jashub, which would mean the remnant shall return. Now, we like to name our children names that we think sound good or bring us uh, you know, thoughts of Ireland or Scotland, whatever. You know, some of us, Corey, Casey, Kelsey, right? uh, Kevin, and others, all of those good Irish European names. Or maybe we like to look through the baby books and find the names that mean something uh, significant. But sometimes God said, name this child something significant, not that you like, but is what is going to happen. And so that's what he tells to Isaiah. These children are going to be, and, and that's what Isaiah says in, in chapter 8, he says, behold, I, and Isaiah's name mean the Lord brings salvation. So that's a great name too. You put them all three together. He says, behold, I... And the children whom the Lord have given me are signs in Israel from the Lord of hosts. Our names mean that our oppressors will be removed, that the remnant shall be returning, and the Lord brings salvation. And the people were to have confidence because God had given them these signs. And when the author applies that verse to Christ in the book of Hebrews and says, Here am I with the children that God has given me. He's saying that Jesus has the same confidence. It's as if he, just as Isaiah, had placed his hands upon the heads of his sons and declared their names, stands among his brothers and his sisters His arms around us, declaring our names, and says, these are the children that God has given me, and this is a sign that this blessed remnant will survive what is to come. And the moment I say that last part, that should remind you what's going on in the church of the Hebrews. 
the people were under tremendous persecution. They were suffering great trials and they were tempted to leave the faith in order to become comfortable again. And so if we remember that, we hear the author encouraging the church by saying Jesus has risen victorious from the grave. He proclaims his father's name to you, his church. He leads you by example by placing his hope in God even in the midst of persecution and he states with confidence that despite the trials that you are facing and are yet to face that he is declared by the very fact of his adopting you by giving you a name and an inheritance that you the remnant will make it that's what those quotations mean Those last two quotes from Isaiah are actually preceded by the statement by God here in Isaiah 8, 11, and I'll, I'll read it to you. He says, the Lord said to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. And he said, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Honor the Lord of hosts as holy, and let him be your fear and your dread. The people needed to hear that, and they needed to know that from the context of those two verses. They were being encouraged to stop fearing man, to start knowing, fearing God, because God had declared their name and knew them. They have been made sons and daughters of God. And Christ had tasted death for them, as verse 14 points out. He had destroyed the power of death, and therefore his people didn't even need, verse 15 says, to fear death. And so we get to verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. The lowest of the low, we are told we are given aid by Jesus, who, as verse 16 says, releases us from bondage. And he did all of that, not just by taking on flesh, but as verses 17 and 18 say, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That doesn't mean, friends, that all of our illnesses will be healed. It doesn't mean that all of our children will be healthy or all of our ideas will work, but Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to hear us. He's faithful to provide us with the grace and strength that we need. And many people today struggle with questions like, is God hidden? Is God silent? Is God unfair? Well, that's not the God of Hebrews 2. It's not one for whom it was appropriate or fitting to perfect his son through sufferings in order that he might bring you salvation. God is very much present. He's active. He's merciful. In fact, as verse 17 says, he is, has given us a faithful high priest. Now, in order to become our high priest, Jesus had to become like us. 
And God has often accommodated himself for his finite creation. But step back for a moment and even just try to imagine, contemplate God's point of view. A spirit, unbound, by time, space, borrows material objects every while and then that he's created a burning bush, a pillar of fire to make himself obvious to us, to condescend to us. But in Jesus, something happens that is unique, is different. New, God becomes enfleshed, incarnated in an event that is unparalleled in the fullest sense of the world, word. And, and God, who fills the universe, condescends, willingly limits his prerogatives, and becomes this peasant baby who, like every infant who has ever lived, had to learn to walk and dress himself. In the incarnation, his son deliberately handicaps himself, if you will, exchanging omniscience for a brain that learns Aramaic word by word. Omnipresence for two legs and an occasional donkey. Omnipotence for arms barely strong enough for wood. And instead of overseeing a hundred billion galaxies at once, he looks out on a narrow alley in Nazareth at a pile of rocks in the Judean desert and at a crowded street in Jerusalem. And in the Gospel of John, we read, God was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And there's little wonder. His disciples kept expecting him to stop being a man, start acting like God. That's what they were thinking. Don't just overturn the money changers' tables. Blast Herod's temple. Blast the Roman Senate out of existence. And of course, the divine couldn't help but be a part of who Jesus was. He sensed events supernaturally at times had a clear understanding of his own life and death healed broken bodies even without seeing or touching the person walked on water caused a storm to instantly end turned water to wine casted out demons even brought the dead back to life and yet he was made so significantly like one of us that people would still ask isn't that the carpenter's son and as verse 18 says, he suffered being tempted. Another passage reads, he was tempted in all ways like we are, and yet without sin. But there's a word in all of that, even though all of that's amazing to me, to, to think of what God did on our behalf. There's a word that stands out to me in particular, and it's the word faithful. And I read these statements. God made flesh, pioneers my salvation, sanctifies me, calls me a brother, leads me in the praise of God, declares to me the Father's name, encourages me to stand strong, destroys death so I will no longer be in bondage, makes propitiation for my sin. And as I read these chapters, I can't help but reflect upon my own unworthiness and my faithlessness. So when I read that he is faithful, and I realize that when it says he is faithful, it's talking about how he is faithful to keep serving me. 
his child, his brother, when I read that as a merciful high priest, it makes me marvel even more. To be faithful means that he is loyal, that he is consistent, that he is trustworthy and capable, and he has done everything required. His loyalty was so thorough that even in the darkest moment in the Garden of Gethsemane and then the cross, he's willing to die for you, for me. It means that when you fall asleep during your prayers, it means that when you yawn and lost track of the last two paragraphs that you just read in your Bible reading, or when you fail to walk in the Spirit and keep sowing to the flesh, when you break your promises and act in petty ways, that he is still faithful to declare you as his brother or sister to make propitiation for you if you are his. And to propitiate, it's a word we stumble over, it means to turn away the wrath of God. When we sin, we arouse God's wrath. But in dying for us and taking upon himself the Father's wrath, he turned that wrath away. He propitiated for our sin. And even now, as our mediator and high priest, he is able to say, this is my brother. This is my sister. These are the ones that you have given me. And Hebrews 6.19 says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, because Jesus has gone on our behalf before us, having become a high priest forever. So he is not only faithful, but he is faithful forever. The Old Testament priests represented God before man, but just as importantly, they represented man before God. And so on the ephod, on the breastplate that they wore, there were fastened 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel so that as the priest walked into the presence of God, he carried with him the names representing the entire nation well, Christ became man so that he could bear our names upon his shoulders. And as a perfect high priest without sin, clothed in his own righteousness, he then offers that up for us. His own blood, his own life, as he bears our names before the Father and turns away his wrath. Now, as we cross the threshold to chapter 3, we step over an important transition because we see again this word therefore. And we've seen that word multiple times in, in the first two chapters. Therefore, therefore, therefore. It's because the author is building this, this argument very carefully running each point into the next. And so when we read therefore in verse 1 of chapter 3, it's referring back to the point that I just made. That Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And because of that fact, therefore, the author says, consider this apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. And maybe that sentence seems a bit mild with all of the lofty things that were said. And that's the unfortunate result of our English translation. 
The Greek word behind consider is the word katnoel, which means to search intently, to think deeply. It's the word that we find in Matthew 7, 3, actually, when Jesus says that we're supposed to look for the log that's in our own eye before we try to take out the speck in another. So I'm sorry, but that word katnoel is there. It means don't don't make that a small step in the process of conflict resolution. Search intently for that log that's sticking out of your eye because it's there, right? Well, Acts 27 is even better. In Acts 27, that's the chapter that describes Paul on a ship being taken to Rome to answer before Caesar, and they're in the midst of a storm. And the boat is about to shipwreck. And so the chapter says that the crew searched intensely along the shoreline for a safe place to run the ship aground. And the word that's used for search there is katnoeo, which is perfect in that sense. When you're aboard a ship with a storm swirling around you, the sea is about to capsize you, then you are just hmm, considering the way our English talks about. You are looking for your life. So when we go back to Hebrews, that is the sense of the word. Consider intently, focus as if your life depended on it because it does. All of these things that have been said about Jesus. And realize again, the church of the Hebrews was facing persecution. They felt like they were in the midst of a storm. They wanted to jump ship. And so the author is saying, wait, listen to what I just read and consider that very carefully. The degree of confidence that we have in something is often directly proportional to the knowledge we have of the object. Wendy and I and the kids just recently flew to Denver and back, and we've been on a plane multiple times, and so we have come to know what to expect. We know the safety of modern airplanes and travel, but there are always those people on the plane who have the look of terror. Right? They buckle their seatbelts 20 minutes before takeoff. They take a pill to calm their nerves. They hold tightly to the armrests as the plane goes off, and they unfailingly always jump at the sound of the landing gear being retracted. So was that the plane? Did we just get hit? What's interesting about the people, though, is that nearly all of them, when the plane is at maximum altitude, when it levels out, the plane's been calmly flying for a while, they typically unbuckle their seatbelts, they begin talking to the people around them, they even go up and use the restroom, they drink, they eat. What changed? The plane didn't get more safe at 36,000 feet, right? The more a person learns about an object of his faith, the plane in this case, 
the more faith they exercise in that object. And the same is true of us. The more we learn about Jesus, the more we intensely focus upon the things that we've been told and recognize that he is greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, and now greater than Moses. And if we're going to put our faith, that's really what the author's saying, if you're going to put your faith and hope in all of those things, here is the one that is greater than this. This is who you should be trusting in. But why Moses? Just as before we leave this section, why Moses? Why is he the last one? Well, we don't have the same veneration for Moses that those in the first century Israel did. But Moses, remember, is the one who spoke with God. And he's the one who led Israel out of Egypt. He's the one who saw the glory of God. And most importantly, he was the one who gave the law to Israel, which was the heart of Jewish life. And Paul mentions in Romans 2 that the Jewish people boasted in the law. And Moses had not only given them the Ten Commandments, but he had written the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And during the most memorable times of Israel's history, it was Moses through whom God worked. It was Moses who was given the plans for the Ark of the Covenant, for the tabernacle that later became the temple, and everything that went with it. And so, to a Jewish man or woman, it was impossible to conceive of anyone standing closer to God than Moses. And so we can see why this is the last comparison. And verse 2 says that Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. And that term house used seven times makes it important, obviously. And for most people, the word house suggests where we worship, but that would be a mistake. A building is never truly called the house of God, either in the New or the Old Testaments. And the early church never referred to a building as the house of God. Instead, the church is the people. We are the house of God. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, we read, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We are called living stones that God builds up. And so we are the house of God. And we look at verse 3. This one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Don't miss the reason. Jesus is said to be the builder of the house. Moses is a part of the house. Moses' work was as a servant. It was to labor on the part of what would become Christ's ultimate work. He is not only the builder of the people of God, the builder of the church, in which Moses was part of that process, but he is the inheritor. He is the son who rules over the house, while Moses is a servant in the house. And the conclusion to everything is verse 6, whose house we, the people, are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So friends, here's where this becomes very, very important and real. You've heard this author speaking to a people we don't know anymore, obviously. 
We don't even know for sure where the church was. A lot of people think it was probably located either in Rome or somewhere near Rome. But this is a church facing persecution. That much we do know. And we have heard everything that the author has been saying to them. And we have the additional benefit of not only that, but we have the whole Old Testament. We have everything else written in the New Testament. We have 2,000 additional years of church history. We are far more blessed than the church that received this letter. And the author says, you are to let all of this sink in. You are to ponder it. You are to consider it. You are to intensely focus upon it as if your life depends upon it, because it does. This, he says, is your apostle and high priest. This is the one who brought you a heavenly calling from God and has made a way for you to God for salvation. On him hangs all of your hope. If you have any confidence this afternoon that your sins are forgiven and that you will persevere in faith and attain to that heavenly calling, that confidence depends not on prophets, not on angels, not on Moses, not on money, not on success, not on whatever it is that replaces those three things that were the most highly venerated in Israelite society. It's probably the materialistic, secular things today for us, ourselves even, if you are to have any confidence that your sins are forgiven, this confidence must depend on Jesus. And I don't know where and when God is going to call upon you to be courageous and stand firm. Because the author was saying, you're needing to consider this in the midst of this trial. And a lot of us are able to read this part of Hebrews and go, yeah, yeah, well, that's because we're very comfortable right now. But there will maybe come a time soon, maybe not so soon, but there will come times when you will be challenged and you will be facing trials and you will be asked to consider these things carefully. What are you going to do? Are you going to stay faithful to your faithful high priest? Are you going to remain rooted and as the anchor of your soul is in Christ? Or are you going to be tempted, as the Hebrews were, to leave and become, you know, remove themselves from persecution? In Acts 7.55, we're told that Stephen, as he was being stoned, by a mob of angry people said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And with that sight, he was able to hold on to his courage and his hope of salvation. He even found grace to ask that his murderers would be forgiven. And I think the key to that for Stephen is he knew who Christ was and he kept his eyes fixed upon his Savior. Will that be you? Do you know who Christ is? And will you keep your eyes fixed upon him? The author has asked you to do that. And he has said that when the storm comes, you will be ready. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to remember who Christ is. 
to recognize him as our faithful high priest who's gone before us behind the veil, who's turned away your wrath because of what he has done on our behalf. He has not been ashamed to call us brothers, but he comes before you not only declaring to us your name, but also with his hands around us, arms around us, declaring us to be the ones that you have given him. And so we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We ask that you would help us to keep our eyes and mind, our gaze intently focused upon our Savior, considering these things so that when we are tempted, when the times become tough and challenging, we will not faint and grow weary, but we will remain strong and fixed as a Stephen. Strong and fixed as Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.